This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. More businesses are looking for employees than people are looking for jobs. Restaurants struggle to find servers, cooks, and dishwashers. Grocery stores advertise for clerks. Anyone who can drive a truck is in huge demand. I live in a town where you have to bring your garbage to the dump. We call it a recycling center. Okay, we're a very upscale town. But if you don't want to bring it yourself, you got to hire a company to do that. Well, so for many years, I've saved money by bringing my garbage to the dump myself. But now I'm thinking, well, maybe I need to have some help. So I decided to call the Refuse Disposal Service and I asked them how much it would cost. And they said, we won't take you. We don't take any new customers. I said, what? And they said, no, we don't have anybody to haul the stuff to the dump. So truck drivers are in big demand out there. But how about teachers? Are they too in short supply? According to news accounts, the nationwide shortage of teachers is about to hit schools when they try to reopen this fall. They say teachers are unhappy with their jobs and they're quitting or at least threatening to quit. So are these news stories just the usual exaggeration that we get or is this a new crisis that's developing? So the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica has just issued a report on the problems districts are likely to face this fall. It's based on interviews with school leaders in district schools and charter schools across the country. The report is entitled, Districts Continue to Struggle with Staffing, Political Polarization, and Unfinished Instruction. Well, I'm pleased to have uh, Melissa Deliberti, an author of the RAND Report, with me today on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Melissa, for joining me today. So, Melissa, your report covers a lot of topics, but... I found your findings with respect to teachers and staff shortages especially interesting. So uh, tell me, what did you find? Uh, what is the shortage that you're uncovering? Yeah, thanks again uh, for having me. Um, I'm happy to be here today to talk about uh, these teacher shortages and what we're finding uh, in our most recent research. Um, so as you mentioned, there's been a lot of attention uh, recently on the extent of the K-12 teacher shortage and whether it has reached, uh, as it's been called, crisis levels. Uh, there have been a lot of media reports of districts struggling to find uh, teachers to fill vacancies. And as we found in our report, um, uh, about three quarters of districts are concerned about uh, the possibility of a teacher shortage going into next school year. And about 17% of these districts are concerned or are categorizing this as a large shortage. Um, but unfortunately, we have no regular national systematic data to fully understand what's going on in the teacher labor market. So instead, we have to kind of rely on multiple data sources to try to piece together uh, what's going on. And one of the major hypotheses that has come out over the last several years, uh, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, was this idea of mass attrition of teachers um, from the pandemic uh, leading into teacher shortages. And as you mentioned, we already know that teachers' jobs got much harder during the pandemic, that they were working longer hours, that they were trying to pivot instruction to meet different instructional modes, and that the many challenges they were experiencing like caused additional stress for them. And so there were these predictions that teachers were going to flee the profession at heightened rates. And we actually really haven't seen this pan out uh, in the data that we have, at least not yet. Uh, the leading consensus right now is that attrition actually decreased in the um, at the end of the 1920 school year. And then in the 2020-2021 school year, it rose back up to normal-ish levels. Uh, but these data are pretty spotty. They're from surveys or from individual states. Um, but they do tell a consistent story, which is that teachers have not left the profession in mass. 
Um, and if teachers haven't left the profession in mass, then we're like left with this puzzle of like why districts are saying that they can't fill vacancies and why districts are concerned or like, you know, have this fear of a teacher shortage going into next year. And so we're uh, our report kind of offers a differing hypothesis from what might be going on. So in our uh, this report is based on a national survey of 300 uh, district leaders. Uh, and basically, our hypothesis is that it's an increase in the number of teachers uh, that districts are seeking to employ that's causing a strain on the teacher labor market. Uh, so we found that three quarters of our survey district uh, leaders say that they've already expanded the number of teaching positions uh, in at least one job category. And eight in 10 of them say they're still hoping to expand their number of teachers further. And together, this paints a picture of districts that are seeking to try to hire more teachers than they have in the past, but are struggling to do so. Well, let me ask you a question. Let yeah, me sure. Ask you this question, Melissa. If if it is the case that you um, that they're hiring more teachers, and this could be the cause of the apparent teacher shortage, mm -hmm. then why are they doing that? Because we it looks like there are going to be fewer students. Like if this is there's reason to believe there could be two million fewer students, four percent. Who knows exactly what it will be, but it could be a significant a decrease in the number of students, and that's in your report too. Though that's a concern that uh, district leaders have. So, so why do they think they have to have more teachers if they have fewer students? Yeah, so you are correct. Uh, we did hear from district leaders that they're concerned about declining enrollments. About four in ten are expressed concern about declining enrollments, and uh, uh, concern about this was particularly strong in urban districts. But our hypothesis about like we there's two potential reasons why we think that districts might be seeking to expand the number of teachers that they employ and also the number of support staff that they employ. The first is that there's a lot of attention focused right now on trying to help uh, kids recover from pandemic related disruptions to schooling and setbacks that happened over the last two years. And they might need additional teachers and classrooms to help with this and additional um, support staff, parapros, tutors to help uh, implement many of the interventions that they're adopting to uh, help address um, some of these concerns. And the second is that teachers, like districts can just afford to hire teachers right now, right? They have a lot of extra money from COVID um, stimulus funds and they have to spend them in the next few years and um, you know, spending money on staff right now, they can afford to do it at least in the short term. But isn't that risky? If you start hiring a lot of new staff, you, you can't fire them easily, can you? And don't you already have a lot of staff then? And people get used to all these additional personnel and then all of a sudden the federal money goes away and there you are stuck with a huge uh, financial problem. So why are district leaders, they know this is gonna happen why are they doing this nonetheless? Yeah, and we did hear from districts, they are concerned about this. Um, we asked, we first asked districts about the possibility of a fiscal cliff uh, back in last summer, in the summer of 2021, and found that about a third of districts um, were concerned about this possibility. And then when we asked again about the possibility of a fiscal cliff uh, this past spring, we found that half of districts are now concerned about this possibility, which might be related to their expansion that we're seeing in their staffing levels. So why is this called a fiscal cliff? Because yeah. <laughs> after all, it's all it's, they've had a fiscal a fiscal bonanza. So the yeah. fiscal bonanza is not going to last forever. So okay, so if you have a bonanza, then have a party, but don't call don't don't expect that it's going to be a permanent party. Yeah, I think the fiscal cliff is so named because there's like a drop dead date at which the um, the money must be allocated. By it. And so I think this, uh, the perception of there being like a drop dead date creates the idea of a cliff, but certainly there are 
are ways for districts to smooth their spending and they, they're aware that this cliff or this end date is going to happen. And so we've been asking in the previous report, we looked at whether districts were um, hiring staff uh, as contractors or as full-time employees with this idea that, you know, if you hire some staff, especially support staff as contractors, you have more flexibility in scaling up and scaling down with uh, as funding levels decrease, um, offering more flexibility. So we did see some evidence of that in previous surveys, the districts are aware of the possibility or like the inevitability of the funding drying up and thinking about this as they're trying to scale their staffing levels appropriately. Well, there's one area where I know there seems to be a shortage. Your data is really interesting when it comes to substitute teachers, because mm -hmm. that's not a future shortage. That's a shortage that's apparently there now that districts are actually willing to pay substitute teachers more money than they used to. That used to be a sort of a cheap way to get the classroom covered, but they feel they've got to pay those substitute teachers more. So why is there such a huge demand for substitute teachers? Yeah, um, so as you pointed out, uh, there have been historical shortages of substitute teachers. Finding enough subs has always been a problem. Um, and we think this problem has gotten worse during the pandemic. Um, and we hypothesize that this stems from there being increased teacher absences over the last several years in the pandemic. Um, either from teachers being out because they have COVID or because they, you know, are stressed out, burned out, they need a day off to recover from, you know, the many challenges that they're dealing with. And you need additional teachers or additional substitutes in the classroom to try to cover those increased teacher vacancies. And certainly you can imagine that like subs are also dealing with increased levels of stress and the possibility of being sick from COVID. So you might be looking to expand your number of subs to cover these heightened teacher shortages and substitute teacher shortages as well. So there could be substitute teachers who I, I have a friend who's a, a former teacher who can substitute teach any day of the week that she wants, but no, she doesn't want to substitute every day. And maybe under the present circumstances, she only wants very specific opportunities out there. And so there could be a lot of people like that. Yeah, and I think there's a hypothesis that a lot of retired teachers like to stay on as substitutes to stay affiliated with the schools. And you can imagine that like what once might have been a more attractive job became less attractive during the pandemic. If you were older and, you know, not looking to increase the level of stress in your life, you might pass on being a sub if in previous years you were, you know, interested in going in a couple of days a week or a couple of times a month to stay attached to the school community. The other one is bus drivers. I, I got I gleaned onto that thing about bus drivers. It seems like drivers getting somebody to drive a bus or a truck or anything is really, really difficult right now. What is going on here? What's the cause of this? Yeah, this uh, our data are a little bit spotty here too, but we do see that um, districts are struggling to find bus drivers, but we hypothesize that this has always been the case that they've been struggling to find bus drivers as well. And maybe that it's gotten a little bit harder for them to find bus drivers uh, throughout the pandemic. And we hypothesize that this is part of like a larger economic problem of competition for like lower wage workers going on and like broader shifts like in the labor market that's showing up in the form of bus yeah. drivers. But drivers, you have to have a license to drive and you've got to prove that you can drive a truck and so forth. But it could be a lot of bus drivers are jumping to higher paid jobs with uh, Amazon out there and various other people doing a lot more delivery. There, there could be just a lot more uh, mm -hmm. demand for, for drivers in, in yeah. general out there. Uh, so let me ask you a little bit about the, how you gathered your data. You said you had 300 district leaders uh, and I know it's a nationally representative sample, or at least that's what you've tried to do, but uh, what are the challenges? Because uh, I think of superintendents, they've got a lot to do. How can they answer surveys from people that they really don't have to answer? They, can they have to answer surveys to the federal government or the state mm -hmm. government, but, but why are they responding to your surveys? 
Yeah, so this survey is part of uh, what's called RAND's American School District Panel. Uh, so it's a nationally representative panel. We took a sample of about 4,000 districts uh, and, and uh, traditional public school districts and then also charter management organizations and then offered them the opportunity to enroll uh, in the American School District Panel. And we got, uh, I think we're up to about 1,100 of those districts that have enrolled in the panel now. And so these are districts that like expect uh, data collection from us. So we've like uh, marketed the panel to them and they're like aware of our surveys. We uh, invite them to take surveys, two or three surveys on a regular basis. Um, so I think that we've been able to have success uh, conducting research with superintendents during the pandemic because we like had this uh, pre-existing uh, structure that enabled us to already have these relationships in place. Um, although we are continuing to recruit new districts into the panel. Well, that's a good move, but still, if you ask them to, if they will do it, then you get a very selected group of people who are, are um, willing to participate. So how do you make that representative? Yeah, so two things. First of all, we send our surveys to a district appointed contact. Um, so they are able to designate their own point of contract. And we um, usually divide the survey into sections and we suggest the job title of the person that like might be the most like knowledgeable person in the school district to uh, fill in the survey questions for us. So we expect that our surveys are complete by a multitude of people in the district, most commonly the superintendent, but supplemented with um, you know, information from other people in the district. And we perceive that this might be reducing burden on like a single person having to be responsible for the entirety of the data collection. Um, but once we get the data back from um, our superintendents uh, or whoever filled out the survey on behalf of the districts, we have a waiting process uh, where we convert um, the population of districts that did respond to the survey to look like the national population of public school districts. Um, so that should account for any like non-response bias. So we could sort of consider about. this a uh, set of responses that are under the direction of the district leader or the superintendent or or the person in charge. It may not be actually that person filling it out, but it may be a, somebody that person trusts to fill it out and could reflect the views of the superintendent. Yeah, I think the data are best interpreted as um, a national sample of school districts in which the superintendent or someone else filling out the survey is responding on behalf of the district. So um, do you think though that they're sort of influenced a little bit just by media talk and conversations? Because I noticed that a lot of them expressed a lot of concern about emotional distress on the part of students and I'm wondering, do they really, you know, is, are they getting that from their own district or are they just picking that up from all the news stories that we're all seeing out there? Uh, what do you think about this? Are they really giving you uh, their own ex direct experiences or are they picking up on the conversation? Uh, I mean, sure. I certainly like what you're saying could be a concern that people's, you know, responses are biased by like broader conversations that are happening in the public. But I think you could make that critique of any survey data. I'm not sure it's like specific to this particular data collection or this survey. So I also think that we're seeing like very consistent trends like across our, the surveys we do with teachers and principals and superintendents. And also in the same patterns that like we're seeing like confer with like data collection collection that's happening by other organizations as well. And I think when you see the same pattern over and over again, it gives it credence and credibility. So I'm certainly not entirely skeptical, you know, of the of what we're seeing in our data. Well, one of the items that you identify is student absenteeism. Uh, do you, um, and that I think they really must know what's happening because they're collecting information about whether or not students are coming to school. Uh, pretty directly, and, and they're reporting a concern there. Do you think that's one of the major problems that they're facing right now? 
Yeah, I think so. Um, we only have data, as you said, from um, superintendents, although presumably they're referencing some sort of like internal data system in which they're like tracking that and have some like numbers in the back of their head about how much absenteeism is increased. But I've certainly seen data from other organizations and in media stories citing, you know, that absenteeism has increased by large percentages um, across districts and across states. And so I think that that's a very real concern uh, for school districts right now. Now, do you think that's going to persist into the coming school year, or is this just uh, the uh, the end of the COVID experience? Yeah, we, it's funny. We were just having a conversation about this the other day of, like, we've been calling this, you know, the 2021-2022 school year, like, the third pandemic school year, and how long we're going to continue to label things, like, the fourth pandemic school year, the eighth pandemic school year. And I think uh, the reason that this still felt like a pandemic school year to us was, I think when it started, there was a perception that, like, all schools were back in person now. Um, you know, there was a perception that things were going to like be like a return to normal and then what we kind of like saw like what we saw in our data collections and what other people saw is that it wasn't quite normal like there were a lot more teacher absences than normal there were more student absences than normal we had another big wave with omicron in the in the um the early winter and so i think this idea of like the return to normal definitely did not exist for the third pandemic school year but i feel the same sense of optimism with the possible exception of like the concern about teacher shortages going into the fourth pandemic school year but i think it remains to be seen the extent to which we can think about next school year as you know a return to normal operations versus an extenuation of the challenges we're seeing from the third pandemic school year so what is districts doing about all of these problems that we've been talking about and of course we haven't even mentioned learning loss and uh, every we were getting a lot of information back not in this particular survey but from other sources that kids haven't been learning at the same rate as in the past online learning is not likely to be uh, the solution to our problems uh, in the near future so what what are schools doing about these issues yeah, I, I mean, I think this is a great question. And like, I think what education researchers are all trying to understand and uncover at the national level, certainly like the ESSER money, I think is helping a lot. The, um, the money that schools got to deal with these additional problems that have come out of the pandemic. We are not the best organization. We don't, we have very limited information about how schools are tra like spending this money. Other organizations are doing a better job of figuring out exactly how schools are using their resources to deal uh, with these problems. But I think the ESSER money has the potential to make a big difference to help districts be able to afford some of these problems. And the things we are seeing in our data, right, that we already kind of talked about was potentially hiring more staff to help, um, you know, cover some of these concerns about shortages. And then we also, which we haven't talked about yet, saw in our data that um, districts have adopted some very common things. Like we've seen a huge increase in uh, summer summer school programs uh, over the course of the pandemic. We see that 60% of districts are, are adopting tutoring programs and that 60% say that they're adopting uh, social emotional learning programs. So I think districts are, are trying to target these problems from like a lot of different vehicles or like from many different spokes um, to try to, you know, think about how to best help students totally recover from the uh, disruptions of the last few years. Well, I don't know if this is in your data or not, but I always worry about these summer programs. Who is participating in them? Do they really get a good turnout? I know a lot of students just do not want to go to school in the summertime, and so there's a lot of resistance to that. So do we have any idea of how many students are responding to the idea of a summer summer school? 
We do know from our data uh, that the number of districts that are offering summer school has increased over the course of the pandemic. Uh, so in summer 2020, about six in 10 districts um, were offering summer school. This is up to about nine in 10 districts in summer 2022. So we've reached a level of like near universality in the offerings of summer school programs. You're completely right that it's not clear to us. Like we don't have great data about like how districts are selecting which students should be coming to summer school school obviously for summer school to like have an effect on students they have to show up and participate and be engaged and it's not clear that you know students or families like want to spend their summer uh, engaged in summer school um, so there are concerns about that uh, but we do know from our data that the enrollments have gone up um, between at least summer 2020 and summer 2021 we did see an increase of enrollments uh, in those districts that were offering summer school uh, again we don't know how it's going to look for this summer uh, but I think there is evidence that there's more access to and more participation in summer school than usual. Well, personally, I'm a fan of tutoring. I think one-to-one -one instruction is the best thing you can ever have. Anything difficult in my life, the only way I solved it was with one-to-one -one instruction. I played the piano and I had a piano teacher, right? That was really important. I played tennis, I had a tennis instructor. That was really important. So I think you can learn a tremendous amount if you have a teacher helping you individually in a sustained way. So the question I have, though, is that so incredibly expensive? How can districts mm -hmm. possibly afford the tutoring at scale? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And again, I, I think districts are paying for these. And I, I think tutoring programs are taking a lot of forms right now, and I am not an expert in tutoring specifically. Um, but I think districts are experimenting with different models for tutoring, and I think they can afford <laughs> variation or like closer to one-to-one -one instruction uh, in the short term. But as we've already discussed, like they might not be able to afford that like in the long term uh, as the you know uh, stimulus money goes away. But I think that that's kind of the point. You know, like we're concerned about uh, you know kids hurting from the pandemic right now, and it might be that these like intensive tutoring programs, which we're spending a lot of money on, like might be the best use of resources in the short term to try to help kids recover. So, you know, that's that's all good. But what do you see going forward? Are we going to be seeing the end of this, or we're we going into the fourth year of the COVID experience? Yeah, I, I think that there's reasons to be cautiously optimistic, but also concerned. Um, I think that we are seeing the pandemic like recede. Um, we've seen, um, we've also been tracking political polarization in schooling. And we've seen from superintendents that their concerns about the um, the pandemic pl or political polarization associated with the pandemic is receding. And then it's less interfering with a district leader's ability to do their jobs. So that's like one like positive signal that, um, you know, the pandemic might be factoring less into um, districts decision-making or concerns about how to operate. Um, but I think that we're right to be concerned about the possibility of continued teacher shortages or concerns about uh, the perception of teacher shortages. We're still right to be concerned about, you know, students' mental health and increased absences. And, you know, we're seeing this trend of high teacher stress, low teacher morale, and concerns about the teacher pipeline. And those should all bring us concern. And of course, we should be concerned about, you know, trying to help kids recover from these two years of disrupted learning or possibly three years of disrupted learning. Um, so I think there's reasons to be, you know, like optimistic, but also, you know, we have a lot of problems that we should be taking seriously. So how about, you didn't mention the um, migration of students away from the public school, but there is something in your report where the district uh, leaders actually express that maybe charters, private schools, homeschooling are picking up enrollments. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's actually happening or is that just 
if, if it's happening is just a temporary phenomenon. Yeah, I, well, I think we've seen from the federal data that a, a public school enrollments did decrease uh, during the 2020-2021 school year. And I think I've seen at least one or two papers that have looked at whether families that left the public school system were moving to charter or private schools or homeschooling. And I think that we found some evidence of that, at least in like certain states or in certain districts. So I think that that trend is probably real. Um, I don't know the extent to which it's permanent. That's kind of a wait and see. I think that this is, you know, still has been a very weird few years. Um, and as we've been talking, it's not quite clear what the next school year is going to look like. But I think there's reasons to think that, you know, kids, once they move to a private school, might stay in a private school, but they also might move back to a public school once things like settle down a little bit. Well, thank you, Melissa, for sharing your report with our podcast listeners. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I have been speaking with Melissa Deliberti, who is the author of a report on problems districts are likely to face in the coming year. The report is entitled, Districts Continue to Struggle with Staffing, Political Polarization, and Instructional Issues. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Thank you for joining me every Monday at noon Eastern time.